All right. Uh, do you want to? Do you want me? To, do you want me to do a countdown or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <coughs> Get some mouth exercises in, you know, like a and the <laughs> stretch your mouth out, you know. Get the you juices. Know, I only do that on Friday eight nights. So. <laughs> Jason and I'm Alex and today we got the Knights Library podcast our first inaugural episode uh, with the great poet Stephen Furlong and Jason is going to read his bio. Stephen Furlong is a poet living outside of Kansas City, Missouri where he lives with his wife and cat. He is the author of the chat book What Lost Has Taught What Lost Taught of Me Nova Scotia Press, 2018. Recent publications can be found in the Pines Hill Review, Louisiana Literature, and Flypaper Lit, among others. He will be found at Twitter, at Stephen J. Furlong, and his pronouns are he, him. And like I said, Stephen's a great poet. We got this interview coming up hot, and we're going to hit the transition into the interview now. Hello, my name is Stephen Furlong, and I'm going to be reading my poem titled Then and Now, which was published with Pine Hills Review, which is edited by Daniel Nestor, and it's uh, put on by the College of St. Rose, which is about 10 minutes from where I grew up in upstate New York. Um, and it's for Jimmy and Mikey. Here we are, all in the family room. We haven't all been together for a couple of years now. That's the problem with different states, lives, and partners who tug and pull like a child running with a kite. They just want to run with their something happy and always searching for the right win. In this house, there are still wide open windows exposing light into the darkest corners. Shadows huddle near the corner of my vision, shaking, I am crying nervously, trying to ensure the world doesn't crack. My words shake like the barren trees in the front yard. Streetlights bow their heads like a child seeking forgiveness. I'm thinking of Turner's 1842 War, the Exile, and the Rockland Pet, and its blood, red sunset, encloses a soldier. It's unknown whose side takes. Napoleon stands in the middle, arms folded, facing the sea of defeat, widespread, that will become his legacy. I see my older sister telling me, I think sometimes you get stuck in your head. So what if I do get stuck in a labyrinth? These blueprints of memory all come back to this house. My childhood bedroom is now a guest room meant for my love and I when we are in town for our visits. There's a touch of my childhood here on the wall, a chalkboard square where I most recently left a line from Kyle Dargan. I will remember this years later as one of the good days. And I hope that's true. Because I've been carrying this weight upon my shoulder, I tell my therapist it's like a backpack. There are, pack, there are pockets I still have to explore. Undoing the clasp, I see my brother's eyes. I think of Pearl Jam's Off He Goes from their 1996 album, No Code. The line, seems for my preconceptions are what should have been burned, plays itself a loop. Circular, my memory, memories play a scene from my youth. We are playing football on Memorial Day, and I'm the youngest, but I hold my own. My cousin's hands are bigger than the laces, but he swing, slings a pass my way, an out route, five yards deep, toward the chain link, away from the first down. I get up smiling because I held onto the football, but my head is throbbing. Warm blood drips on my neck, stains my jersey, but not the memory. No, 
This memory is about love. My brother comes to my defense, stands between me and the guy who made the tackle. No harm was intended, but I'm still bleeding. I've been meaning to write this poem for years, but questions bloomed in my head like the oval stage of a dandelion pulled from the soil of my brain, only to be blown, scattered. Uh, thank you, uh, and and welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Um, that's amazing. That was an amazing poem, um, which I think I'm going to circle back to, as I continually circle back to anyway. Uh, but yeah, we... We would like to welcome you to the podcast, and it's so great to have you here. It's and so great to be here. <laughs> and this is our first ever um, podcast issue. Are they called issues, Alex? They're called episodes. Episodes. Look, I only know that podcasts have episodes because I watch the. I well, watch. I listen to the Poetry Salon, which is done by Gabriel Bates, Luther Hughes. And, oh gosh, I knew that I was going to forget the third poet, and I feel bad about this. Um, I need to give me a second. add that to mine. Um, well, uh, I guess we could start um, with, how, how are you feeling? How are you feeling today? I mean, I, I'm doing okay. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty, especially between the ongoing pandemic and the ongoing election. Um, for the sake of my mental health, I've kind of avoided searching election 2020 results as long as I can. I mean, I know that that comes from a place of protection, um, but it's just, you know, I, there's so many things going on and there's so many resources that you can find that have, that talk about things as far as the election is concerned. And so just that, all that noise is very, is very much loud. Um, and I, I've been trying to find ways to keep and maintain quiet. <laughs> that I can definitely understand. Yeah, it's very, very nice. Fujita Hot, that's the poet. I knew, I knew that I was going to forget it. <laughs> Jeez. Sorry, I had to look it up. You're, you're one of my favorite people, and you know this. <laughs> I try. I mean, I, I don't like forgetting people, and so therefore I knew, I knew the name, and it was on the tip of my tongue, but I'm just like, I have to look this up. But the, the, the point I'm trying to say, what, listen to the Poetry Salon. They're fantastic. The one that I keep going back to is they had a conversation with Jericho Brown, and Jericho is just such a brilliant, brilliant mind who I, every book that he's written has cultivated my thought process on poetry and memory and trauma, and I, he's just a brilliant. He does, it, I, I could talk about in the entire podcast, but I'm sure even though that would be appreciated by some folks that, you know, you should probably move the topic somewhere else. Um, I'm saying, please buy his first book revolutionized the revolutionized the way that I saw memory. And I was like, that's what poetry can do. If you really get the heart of memory and get at the heart of narrative and it just mind, mind blowing. (laughs) Speaking on memory, um, one of the um, one of the lines in in the poem that you just read, uh, these mm-hmm. blueprints all the line specifically is these blueprints of memory um, all come back to this house. My childhood bedroom is now a guest room, which is true. My parents made my childhood bedroom a guest room, which you know I. Totally understand. You know, I no longer I no longer live in New York, and it makes sense. But I'm the first child of. I mean, I'm one of. I have three siblings, and I'm the first child of of a family whose room has now become a guest room. And so, therefore, my mother sent me a picture one day and said, "I'm thinking we're starting to think about you know painting over your room," and it was really sad because I really built that room with. What the, the vision that was in mind was all what I wanted to do. I had like locker, my closet doors looked like lockers that had my favorite, some of my favorite players. Like I had uh, Michael Jordan, Brian Urlacher. Um, I had Tino Martinez. I had Julius Peppers. Uh, and like I, I had my, the middle was my, my own uh, locker and it had my nickname, which is Woogie, W-O-O-G-I-E. Uh, not to be con- uh, not from there's something about Mary, but I used to be obsessed 
with um, the Jungle Book. And so mm -hmm. I would dance. And my father said that I was Moogly and Woogly. And Woogly <laughs> managed to be shortened to Woogie. And it's been my nickname ever since. Um, but like, and then it was, it had, it, you know, I cultivated it with all these, uh, all the, uh, like snippets of poems and all these, I mean, I'm an avid collector of sports memorabilia. So therefore I had, you know, some very awesome photographs that I had gotten. Um, and like, then I got a text message saying, Hey, this is happening. And I, I mean, I, I, I knew that it was for the good and I knew that it was going to give uh, my wife and I space, but there's just something deeply, it's, it's just like haunting, I guess, because that's where I spent, that's where I had the core memories of youth. And then now, even though it's the same space, it's not the same space. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot about that, especially as we, as I write tra trauma poems specifically, that how mo poetry moves from memory and experience to memory and experience of writing a poem and then memory of an experience of reading that poem out loud. Like that, then and now is the, I haven't written, written that, read that poem out loud since three, six months ago. So it's just very interesting to see hear those words now and to think about those memories now, because the poem itself is a kind of about the, you know, economy of memory of, you remember, have this memory now, but this is what happened. And that's something that I think way too much about. <laughs> I mean, it's a gorgeous poem, and, and I think it really kind of tacks into how we collect memories and and hold onto them for their their value of, of joy and love, but also how there are points in which those that joy and love is still broken. And um, I think that, that line itself, um, that and the line where you said uh, that this is this is not about, well, this is still about joy. Um, those two lines really mirror each other in this idea of what memory really is and what is created memory versus actuality. Um, so uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, you. Oh, of course. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm overshadowing Alex. Hey, Alex. <laughs> it, it, you off the bat you just came out with this question and i was like i'm just gonna let this you know conversation <laughs> flow because this this is what we call in the business uh good shit so <laughs> got that going for me in saturday morning got that going for me <laughs> um well for those that don't know um steven has an amazing book um called what loss taught me and um, in notes of what Lost taught me, you mentioned some of the poets whose work inspired your own. Exactly, how did they inspire you? So, like, what 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 did their work really do for you to make this book? Um. Okay. Well, I'm gonna read mine. So I'll go a little bit by poet by poet, and then when I talk too much, you can tell me. Um, <laughs> Bruce Weigel uh, is a poet Sorry, that I've I known. I understand. Okay, Google, calm yourself. <laughs> sure. For how long? Forever. <laughs> Sorry. How long? Stop. Wait, my no Google. Problem. Nothing's been said. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Anyways, that was embarrassing. Um. So Bruce Weigel's a poet that I've known for a long time, and I, his first, the first book of his that I read was called What Saves Us came out from tri-quarterly books in 1992, which is hard to believe because that's as old as me, not to say. Uh, so therefore, it was uh, his book, I, and that book specifically has a poem called The Impossible, um, which he, which is, is a really well known as far as, as, far as a tra tra trauma poem and movement towards, and the book itself, you know, it talks about Vietnam, it talks about child sexual abuse, it talks a lot about, you know, masculinity and complications therein. And so he's been a poet that I've read for a very long time. I, his, the first time that I read his work would have been 2012, which would have been my second year of community college after I got suspended for my undergrad my freshman year. I got suspended because I was placed on academic suspension. You know, Truman State said, we like your money, but we don't like it that much. And a 163 was not acceptable. Understandable. Um, 
Eddie Vedder, I mean, I, I, it's funny, I own the movie Into the Wild, but I've never watched it in completion. But the soundtrack has been stuck in my head for a long time. And Four Hearts Son is one of those ones specifically that just really... And I also like the... It's, those are referring to the epigraphs, and I like the duality of the sun and sun aspects uh, found there. Um, I would like to say real quick that the soundtrack is better than the movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 like I said, I own the movie, but I have not seen it in completion. And, you know, Eddie Vedder, you know, Pearl Jam as a whole, like I really admired them a lot in high school and I still do. I still listen to their stuff, but you know, it's just, it's, it's, inter- it's interesting. The music that plays in our head long after they are around and that's their band that plays in my head. <laughs> um, Mary Jo Bain teaches at Washington University of St. Louis. And so I used to live in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I now live closer to Kansas City. And I went to St. Louis a lot because St. Louis had a popular uh, poetry scene. And so I saw her read with uh, Diane Seuss. And it was a a really great experience. Um, And so she actually was talking, she had a question. So she she was talking about the perfect writing day, if something was to exist. And so... I stole that line for those, for those who imagine coherency. Um, this is going to sound very vain, but I used to read a lot of poetry with the poets who had my first name and like be obsessed with reading a lot of, so therefore Stephen, you know, I thought, and so I read Stephen Dunn. Steve Orlin is another major influence that I talk about um, as far as poetic influence is concerned. But I mean, it's, that was that was kind of my way in when I fell in love with poetry for the second time because I was trying to figure out myself and I thought if these other Stevens could cultivate some experience, then maybe I could too. Um, let's see. Afa Michael Weaver. I mean, he, so Afa Michael Weaver, I could, again, just like Jericho Brown, I could talk about Afa Michael Weaver for the entire podcast. If you let me, um, but he's just, his work specifically the government of nature, which is the book that I, uh, with a poem that uh, I refer, I um, do my own variation of in the book. Um, it's just absolutely brilliant. Um, it's I I <laughs> even though I could talk about it all the time, it, it also makes me just dumbfounded to just be silent and appreciate what he has to say. So that's what I'll say there. Um, I used to be upset. I still maybe am, but I used to be obsessed with reading my mentors' mentors. So therefore, like Jamie D'Agostino is my mentor from Truman State University, and he studied under West at Western Michigan in Kalamazoo, and so therefore I read William Olson and Nancy Eimers and poets that he studied under because I wanted that lineage. And he also studied under Dean Young, who currently teaches at Texas, but he studied at Dean Young at the University of Chicago Loyola, and I just was like, I'm going to read the poets that inspired you, and so I wanted to do that and it felt important to have that lineage. Um, but poetry as a whole, I mean, I, I think a lot about poetry as, as influence and I mean, as any poet does, but you know, these poets helped shape, you know, basically the reading soundtrack that I had during my grad school year. So which, cause that pretty much all these poems, except for one or two were written during my grad school years. And so therefore I, you know, my, my, my grad school mentor was always like, what book? But what you know? What books do you have in your backpack today? What books are we talking about today? So, awesome. Um, you mentioned the reading soundtrack, and you also mentioned soundtrack. So, how much does music actually play into your writing and your your writing craft? I think more and more, it's helping me get step away from the emotion of the writing or rev up that emotion specifically. Like I, this past, this past year for 2020, because of the ongoing stress of pandemic life, I have put together a complex playlist. And so therefore, like I listen to that regularly and I interact with the, the you know, the individuals in that, in that playlist a lot. And it's, it's one of those things that also is growing based on various people that I encounter through the, the joys of listening to music. Um, but I, I, when I'm writing, I can only listen to instrumental music. So therefore, like I listen to a lot of piano. I listen to a lot of, uh, Trent Reznor's, uh, stuff as for electronic stuff. Um, uh, 
industrial is the technical term, I suppose, if you want to, when we want it to be that technical. Um, but I, you know, I, I it's, I, if I, I find that if I listen to music with words, then the poem, the words that come out in my poem are those words, which I mean, may, not, may, may not be the bad thing, but it also makes me feel like I'm taking from something that's not mine to take from. I get that. I get that. Yeah, for sure. Unless I'm writing a poem that's specific to a song, I, right. I typically don't listen. I don't listen to that, that song or any songs. Um, but I listen to rain sounds because I'm I'm weird. So, see, it's I used to be terrified of thunderstorms as a kid. Like I had a chronic mm-hmm. fear anytime that it came, and I always, I even to the point where I, if people mentioned the word thunder, I thought it would be like an omen that the thunder would come out and it would just like wreak havoc on my young brain. Um, but now I listen to thunderstorm music to fall asleep because it helps my wife fall asleep. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because I was also very afraid of thunderstorms as a kid and everyone else I've told that to, they're like, what, what the hell? Like that's, why would you ever be scared of thunderstorms? I'm like, have you ever been in a thunderstorm? Right. Not a pleasant experience. And it's, I'm, it's a lot of people think, oh, you're afraid of the lightning because it's a big, you know, it's a big, you know, it's a big sudden light. No, I'm afraid of the thunder. Yes, it's the thunder. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't help that I was told so many so like my grandmother told me it was Babe Ruth hitting home runs and the rain was coming out because the you know the angels were crying because they lost another baseball game. I was told that it was God bowling and therefore he won again and the angels again were crying. It always made me so weirded out that the angels were crying so much. When I grew up as a Roman Catholic and I was told they were so spiritual and loving and happy and good lucky, I guess, but to know that, to know that because rain was happening, they were crying. It was anyway, weird things, but a lot of crying. A, yes. <laughs> but you know, I was just, it was told all these different things, but I was never told this is why thunders made. And then I remember the year that we did learn about the, uh, uh, rain cycle. I mean, I'm not going to use the specialized term because I don't know the specialized term. Um, but that fourth, it was my fourth grade year. And that was during the September to, to like October uh, time frame of fourth grade. And in fourth grade, nine 11 happened and I grew up mm-hmm. in upstate New York. And so that mm-hmm. was, I was not focused <laughs> as a student. That's fair. That's, I mean, that's very fair. Did you say fourth grade? Fourth grade. Jesus, I was in eighth grade. I was in eighth grade. Or was that ninth grade? That might have been ninth grade. Oh, I feel old. I think it was ninth grade. I think you're five years younger than me. Um, I'll be twenty nine next April. I'm in four years. I'm. I'll be thirty three. Okay. Um, in general, I think that I, I can imagine. Uh, how difficult being in New York around that time would just be, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, fuck. Um, so uh, one of the central themes of what uh, Loss has taught me is uh, what it means to be a survivor. Um, what do you hope readers take away from these poems? Hmm. Uh, you know, in the end of, at the end of my book, I have that the little meditation that I think a lot about, and that is, let this offer hope, let this offer love, let this be hope, let this be love. Um, and I think that, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a very good um, support team between very good counselors to having some of the best friends that a people person could ask for. Um, you know, when, you know, and so therefore I, and knowing that I had, you know, my family supported the best, me the best that they could given the circumstances. Um, you know, I think that I really just hope that it gives people who read it another voice to say, you know, you're, you're not alone because that's what writing and that's what reading does for me. Um, and, you know, that's the classic Matilda line, of course. Um, but, you know, I think that it really, that's what I really hope for um, as far as, you know, just pr- helping them 
be protected from the immense loneliness that comes from being a survivor sometimes. I can definitely say as a person that's read the book now, um, maybe four times, um, that definitely the hope is the underlining, like there is, of course, there's a lot of trauma there. There's a lot of fear. Um, There's anger there, you know, despair. That's all in the book. And of course it's going to be in a book of uh, this magnitude, but there's definitely a lot of hope that is under it as well. Um, And I personally would like want to know, how did you tie in that? How do you, how do you, how do you tie in that hope within your poems? Sure. Um, so when I, I, I was, as I said, I wrote this book, book during my grad school years and the poet that I studied, studied under her name is Susan Swartout. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we were talking back and forth and we were, we, one of our first meeting, or actually our first meeting that I ever had with her, she gave me a copy of the, one of the books that the press, the Southeast Missouri State University Press put together and then a chapbook that they put together and it was just like, here, immerse yourself in poetry. Welcome. And that, like that, so that, and I think about that interaction a lot, but specifically as it, you know, again, an, an initiation. But one of our, our first conversations that we had about my thesis, you know, I, 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 was, a, I was a writer, but I had a, in my brain, I'm like, I'm going to go study and I'm going to write a 80 page critical paper about contemporary trauma poetry and the influence that it has. And, why it's important and that sort of thing. And so she's just like, you're not going to write your book. Just right there. Just, you're not going to write your book. And I'm like, I mean, I was thinking about it. Yeah. But I mean, it's, that seems very daunting. And she's like, yeah, but you have two years and I'm going to have, we have two years. Let's do this. And I'm like, but I, and then I I remember the very next thing I said, I was like, I'm afraid that it's going to be dark. (laughs) And she looks at me and she said, it's going to be but think of all the light it will bring. And I'm like, I hadn't thought about it like that. And that was one of Susan's superpowers is that she could help, she helped alter my perspective throughout the entire process. And like, she would, you know, she would help, she would see a poem. She's like, I like this poem, but you're not being true to yourself yet. I think you're holding back. And then other times she's like, you wrote this poem and it's fantastic. And I, I love you and I support you and I hear you. And like, she mixed between being my biggest cheerleader and knowing when to give me a swift kick in the rear. And I think that that was really one of my, one of the very foundational things. Um, and so like having that mindset helped a lot. Um, and you know, I, I helped, you know, I also, it helped that I was immersing myself with a lot of trauma poetry and that during that time frame because it allowed me to recognize other paths and one of the wonderful, scary, terrifying things about trauma poetry is that everybody has their own way and their own movement towards how they get to the, you know, where, you know how they get to where they want to get to. I hesitate to use the word end because I don't think that this, you know, I think the more, the more that I think about trauma, the more that I think it's about management. It's not something that's really an ending point. Um, and so... You know, seeing that those influ- hearing those influences, interacting with those influences, allowed me to continue forth and recognize that, you know, writing by doing the very act of writing, I, I'm moving forward, um, and that and that helped a lot. Awesome. Um, so I'm actually gonna I'm gonna shift the conversation just a little bit, if that's okay with you. Uh, and we're going to talk about teaching because you, you are. <laughs> sure. um, so uh, how, how did you actually get into your, your role as a teacher? If you told me my, after my freshman year at Truman that I was going to become a teacher, I would have laughed in your face. You know, my, that freshman year, I got 1A, and I was in creative writing with Jamie D'Agostino, the poet that I mentioned before. And I got a couple Bs, well, I think one or two Cs, and then I failed the rest including English composition, which is a class that I currently teach. Um, and I think, but I think that that failure and that recognition of failure has made me a better teacher because it has allowed me to have a, you know, an open conversation in the very beginning part of the semester to my, with my students. And I'm like, you know, the first time I took this class, I failed. And then I got a B. 
And then I took it again and again in A. So therefore, you know, A, I was stubborn and persistent. I got that going for me. Um, but I also think that teaching specifically allows me to see young, you know, I teach college composition. So freshmen, students, uh, but I teach at a community college, which means that I see a variety of different people from all walks of life. Like my last semester uh, before we switched, you know, even when we switched online, but you know, I had a student who was in her mid fifties who was wanting to uh, go get into uh, IT and she had to take my class. And so like, it's, and then I have also this semester, I have so many high school students are taking my, my inch class. And so just to know that ebb and flow of where they are in their, you know, their journey is really awesome to me. Um, but I think that being able to write clearly and being able to articulate, you know, I, how you're feeling with, you know, I, I, I tell my students specifically all the time, concrete specific details, they're going to push you forth and they're going to be the foundation of your narrative or whatever the narrative that you're talking about is. And, you know, we do have multiple different things. You know, the first two essays are more geared towards um, personal narrative. The third essay is a, a essay that uses research. And then, you know, we're just moving on and forth. Um, but I guess to really get to the heart of your question, you know, I, I never thought about teaching until my best friend, Charlie Rudiman, uh, told me, he's like, you know, you like, you like learning. You like reading. You like writing. Have you ever thought about teaching? And at that point in time, you know, I was in my second semester of community college time. And, you know, the first semester I, you know, my, I, I, I got a three, two, five. So I was becoming the student that my father knew that I could be, which helped. And then Charlie gave me that kind of, you know, this is something you could think about. And I had never thought about that. And so that would have been eight years ago. And then I took the path back, you know, I graduated from my community college. And then I only applied back to Truman State. I got in and then, you know, I graduated from there and then I applied to grad school. And one of the cool things about Southeast Missouri State University is that for your scholarship, you get to teach. And so mm -hmm. I taught freshman composition and I learned on the fly how to teach. And I very much say on the fly because, you know, we have two weeks of training, <laughs> but you don't know how to teach you don't, know, you don't adequately learn how to teach in two weeks. You learn by experience. And I fully admit that I, I mix between being the, you know, soft, uh, you know, teddy bear that I am to some people and then being the grizzly bear because I didn't, I didn't know that I was going through so much stress that I had no idea because that's what grad school does to you. Um, but it also helped me and it just, uh, that experience helped a lot. And then, you know, my last year and a half in Cape Girardeau, I didn't teach at the college because, you know, budget cuts and all that good stuff. And so that time away also helped me with my teaching because I wanted, I, I want, I knew that I wanted to get back to teaching, but I didn't know how I was going to get back. And then, you know, but one thing that it really taught me was to be softer. <laughs> and I think, especially considering it was a humbling experience that I was no longer teaching and I would no longer have that opportunity. But now I teach and I'm heading into year, this is year two of the, the community college that I teach at. Mm. And then, you know, we'll see what paths may lie, may lie, may lie, may lie, may words. How do you think, not just teaching, but your students as well, how, how have they um, influenced your specific writing? So, during the, I have found, you know, I, I go through natural ebbs and flows of my creative process. Like I used to, during grad school, I wrote 125 poems in two years. I can only dream of that productivity now. I haven't written, I haven't written more than 50 poems since I graduated and I graduated in 2017. But I think that that has allowed me more recognition of the poems that I did write um, and it allowed me to make those poems sharper. Um, and my students specifically, you know, they, they come to class with such wild, like just wild excitement, I think really. And that, that excitement of whether it's nervous energy or being anxious because they're like, I don't think I'm a writer, but I'm taking a writing class. I've been, I've been speaking English all my life. How come I have to take this class? This is silly. But like all these different mindsets 
but then I get to see them interact and I get to see them develop and that, that natural growth that they have that happens in that 16 weeks, even though they may not see it at that time, I do. And then I hope that, you know, a semester or two later, they like, you know, that one thing that Mr. Furlong said about, you know, specific detail that, that made a lot of sense to me. And so if I can, if, you know, if I have more students that can, are able to say that, that it made sense to me, as opposed to, I hate English, then I'm doing something right. <laughs> um, what's, what's next? What, what do you have coming up? Um, so I, I'm finally starting to get back into a creative rhythm of sorts, in the sense that I am starting to read more. I mean, I, I, it would seem otherwise that, that I am constantly reading, but because I have about 18 books on my desk right now. Um, but I'm finally getting back to where I'm allowing myself the time to read um, and not just read student emails or student essays. As much as I love them, it's also nice to cultivate a different side of my brain. Um, and I also currently do part-time work at a local library. So therefore, we've been doing a lot of work about community educational outreach. And so therefore that mindset has also helped me. And you know, one of the things that was approved by my library director was that I get to teach a creative writing class, which is terrifying and exciting and wonderful. Um, but I think that th knowing that I have these opportunities has allowed me to be freer when I'm writing my current, currently writing. And so therefore, as of right now, like the most things that I'm writing are, you know, words or phrases, like, uh, I have, we have the good fortune of living in the same town as my wife's grandparents. And there's Papa Dan, and Papa Dan, you know, he's going to be turning 81 next year, or ne this, next month, I'm sorry. And he just says, sometimes he just looks at me and he says the crazy, like, not the craziest, but like the, just the most offbeat things that you might imagine. And the, one of the more recent ones that he said, he looks at me and he says, you know, it's important that everybody has ice cream keeps everybody happy and like that just that, that gen, gentle moment I wrote down and like you know just these little grandpa isms because I didn't I mean my pop pop my father's father died when I was six months and then my mother's father my grandpa Simmons that died when he when I was five give or take and so therefore I didn't really have a grandfather growing up and so knowing that I have him and knowing that we have these interactions and we're, you know, we, we're probably going to go to their house later today because it's college football day. And knowing that that's an opportunity, you know, I just, I, I am more receptive to those moments that I, in my life than I think that I've ever really been, I think. Mm. And so I think that that's for how I think about poetry specifically, because I'm more, I think that, you know, even though I haven't written a poem in two and a half months, I have also been more actively thinking about poetry and I think that that has allowed me to be in a better headspace when I do actually sit down and be like today I'm going to write a poem and that'll come but it'll will take its time and I get that awesome um well, we look forward to whatever is next on that uh for sure because um your work is amazing for sure um if you can't tell I'm blushing now Um, don't worry, this will be all audio, so people won't see your, your, your blushing. Um, that means that they will also won't see my awesome t-shirt, which is, ask me about my book. I wore this shirt for this conversation specifically. I got it as a t-shirt for my, for my little sister, uh, two years ago, actually, for, for Christmas. She gave it to me because she's like, you wrote a book, so this is a cool t-shirt. I found it. <laughs> I need one of those. Um. Etsy. I apparently find everything on Etsy. I, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure Etsy is very um, handy. It's yes. very... Um, you just reminded me that I've never been... Since I moved, I have not been to this library over here, and I wanted to go, so I might go today. Maybe today's a library day. Um, it's always a library day, right? Libraries <laughs> are amazing, unless it's Halley Library at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, Alley Library is actually a decent library, all things considered. Is they it have good? a giant robot underground that gets books for you. I don't know what's cooler than that. That okay, I'll give you that. Giant robot giving books. All right, not the giant robot that I imagine in my nightmares. Cool. That's nice. <laughs> it's 
our library at the at the university is is kind of when it's twenty four hours, I like it. Sure. That's well, I don't use it anymore, clearly. But when it was twenty four hours during finals, I lived there, actually, for a full week. Uh, we commandeered a room for a week. I don't know how we managed that, but we did it. Um, so um, again. And within the book, we definitely talk about a lot of, uh, as we stated before, a lot of traumatic experiences, a lot of things like that. What does self-care look like to you? More and more, I mean, this is going to sound cheesy, but I think of the line from The Dark Knight, um, and Alfred and Bruce Wayne are talking back and forth, and... Uh, Alfred, you know, says, "Know your limits, Master Wayne," and his response is, "Batman has no limits." And then, you know, and then you know, Alfred again says, "But, but you know, but Bruce Wayne does." And so, for me, I have become the, one of the things that I've actively been doing the last, you know, three-ish years in counseling is being aware of what my body's doing when I'm panicking. Um, so therefore, you know, obviously there's the hand sweating, but there's also the shoulder, my shoulder get like tenses up and it seizes and to the point where I can't even move it. Um, you know, my toes feel like they're on fire. All these sort of things are happening to my body when I'm having a panic attack. And so knowing that what my body does when I'm having a panic attack has allowed me greater recognition of when I've when my I've become overstimulated when things have gone too far and I've been very fortunate to do a lot of breathing techniques and so I have those sort of things but you know I, I if my with my current counselor one of the things we're working on is healthy maintaining cultivating and maintaining healthy coping mechanisms mm. because and I think about you know one of the things that I uh the poet Emma Bolden who I really admire one of the things we were talking we were talking about a couple months ago and one of the things that she said, she said, you know, not everything that, you know, helps you survive, will you, do you need to keep to keep you alive? And so I think a lot about that as far as, you know, even though you might have these things that, you know, help you, stay, you know, survive, they don't, you don't need to keep them around all, for you know, all the time that you're, you're around. And, you know, I, I think about all the, especially from the first initial, you know, months of, trauma recovery, which in this case, recovery constitutes the time, the time after I opened up about what happened to me with my family to now, you know, I, you know, the, I was at that point in time, I was firmly in survival mode mm. and now I'm no longer, even the, I'm no longer in, you know, I'm no longer in that mode in that hyper-focus but I And that is exhausting to be prepared and so hypervigilant. And so therefore I'm taking the time to not be so guarded and not be so protective of myself and my energies uh, because I'm surrounded by people who want to see me and they want to see me be, you know, the genuine, the, you know, the guy who loves puns, who talks about New York Giants football until he's blue in the face, you know, all these sort of things but I can't be that guy if I am constantly concerned about how one thing might take the entire day and, you know, bring it down to the ashes. And I know that that's something that I, my brain has the capacity of doing, which is a very destructive thing. Um, I just realized something. What's that? Um, we are really good friends, right? Um, for those that don't know, uh, myself and, and, and Steven are really good friends and we talk almost every single day, um, which is amazing. I do enjoy my conversations with my lovely Steven. Um, more blushing that you can't see. Huh? I said more blushing that you can't see. True, true. I'm a Washington football fr fan. <laughs> so I'm going to preface this with my best friend, Charlie, loves the University of Michigan. Ugh. I grew up a University of Notre Dame fan because a lot of my family went there. 
we have never in our lives let that that fandom separate us because there are greater things than football. That's fair. I'm just saying it's we have never had this conversation. We have not. I'm just really realizing it now because I know that you're. I knew that you're a Giants fan, uh, but my family has been like. Of course, um, toxic names aside, uh, and, and mascots, but um, has been a Washington football fan because I'm from DC. So like, sure. no, and they're all from DC. So it's just kind of like that's what I grew up with. Um, but it's fine. I love you anyway. Don't worry. <laughs> and see, I mean, I, I grew up as a Giants fan because so I, the town that I grew well, it's actually a, this capital, Albany. They, the New York Giants used to have training camp there, and I would go during all the summers, and I'd watch the Giants practice. And that having that experience, and then getting an obscene amount of autographs over the years, like that, really cultivated my love and appreciation. So that is that's fair. Again, it's just funny to, for me because I just I just thought about it literally right now as you were talking. I was like, oh that's wait. Funny. <laughs> um, well, where, because this is also super important for uh, promotion and self-promotion, I know we, you can get the book downloaded as a PDF from, uh, from the press because it is sold out because you're an amazing writer and it, it deserves to be sold out because you're an amazing writer again. Um, but where can people find you? So I'm available on Twitter at Stephen J. Furlong. My S T E P H E N J F U R L O N G. I'm on Facebook. If that's a thing that you still use, I know that some that Facebook is becoming increasingly stepping away from. But it's. Um, I also have in the chat book itself. I have my email address, and I put that email address in because I'm, you know, I I want to be able to be contact. I guess if that's if that's something that people want to do. Um, I, you know, I. I this is, I, one of the things that I do as a writer is if I read something deeply profound, I feel the need to reach out to the person who wrote it for better or for worse. And like, so during, I remember during my undergrad years, I read, um, I read Bruce Weigel and I just thanked him for his, his work. And I got an email saying, thanks bud. <laughs> <laughs> so but it was just, but no, that subtle moment was really sweet. Oh, yeah, um, no, it's still a moment. That's great. <laughs> and so, that's awesome. Um, so definitely, I hope people look up you and and get to experience your work and your Twitter. And um, you definitely are a person that gives a lot of poetry to the community as well. So when you read something, you post it. It's not something that you hold to yourself. And I think that's very important for people to create community through what they read. Um, I'm not just saying this because you posted my poem, but I'm saying this because you post a lot of poems. So I get to read a lot of things that I wouldn't have read before. Um, and it's a way of discovering maybe your favorite new, new favorite new poet, right? Um, so for that, I do appreciate it. 150%, thank you. Um, do you mind? Just 150? Darn. 152. I give you 152. <laughs> do you mind? Got uh, an extra 2%. You mind close, closing us out with the one, one more poem? Sure. So this poem was requested by Jason. It's uh, titled Anaphora, or a poem about courage. Um, and brief definition of sorts, anaphora refers to the repetition of a word or a phrase throughout the poem. And in this case, I chose a word that I hate, which is eventually. I did this as a challenge to myself, and it worked. Eventually, we'll be able to go home. Eventually, we will be able to. Eventually, we'll be able. Eventually, we'll be. Eventually will, eventually. Eventually I'll be able to love myself. Eventually I'll be able to love. Eventually I'll be able to. Eventually I'll be able. Eventually I'll be.
Eventually, I'll... Eventually. Eventually, my words will lose meaning. Eventually, my words will lose. Eventually, my words will. Eventually, my words... Eventually, my... Eventually. Eventually, love will finally conquer doubts. Eventually, love will finally conquer. Eventually, love will finally... Eventually, love will. Eventually, love. Eventually. So, unfortunately, Stephen's Zoom call crashed right after finishing that poem, so we cannot give him a proper send-off with him involved. We promised we will try to do better next time. The Knight's Library Podcast is hosted by myself, Alex Nuttall, and Jason Crawford. This episode was also edited by myself, who is still Alex Nuttall. A special thank you to Stephen Furlong for being on our first episode, and we cannot thank you enough. Our theme song is I Love the Way You Stit Still, 79, by the all-powerful MC Rhoda. And the song you're hearing right now is Vaguely European, also by the all-powerful MC Rhoda. We'll have a new episode out in February, and we'll see you then.